As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, I'm going to say a phrase, and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. All right, let's do this. Startup investor. Okay. Well, not to put them all in the same box, but I'm picturing someone with a lot of money. Somebody who's, uh, I guess, independently wealthy, if you could say. Probably from some fancy school, or I don't know, maybe they inherited some family money. Okay, that's fair. Um, what about stock trader? Okay, uh, I've got that classic Wall Street suit and tie in my mind right now. The type who bumps past you walking in Manhattan, right? On their way to, I don't know, something very, very important seemingly. Right. It's all, always something really important. They're always in a rush, right? Mm-hmm, uh, all right. Mm-hmm. That's fair too. But let me put some contrast to those first two thoughts. Okay. Okay. What if I told you that that startup investor was a 25-year-old customer service rep with about as much money in her bank account as you'd imagine a customer service rep having. And 
that stock trader, well, they made their investments in between Uber rides that they gave on weekend nights. Okay. All right. Are those real people, though, that you're describing? Actually, yes. Two friends of mine, Kelsey and Steve. And this episode isn't necessarily going to be about Kelsey and Steve. It's sort of about the people, though, that are just like Kelsey and Steve. And we're going to dive into the democratization of investments, how things have changed, how the power has now gone back into the hands of the people. Okay, of course. And with great power comes great responsibility. And in order for the power to go to the people, somebody had to transfer that power, I imagine. Those groups who had the power to begin with and handed it over, well, they're the ones with the great responsibility we're talking about. We'll talk about how they may actually be responsible for some very serious things because there's a bit of downside to this democratization of investments, isn't there? There is, and we'll learn why that's the case today on Rocketship.fm. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. The democratization of investing. This is certainly a hot topic. I mean, it's something that a lot of people have really wanted to see happen for quite some time. Yeah, and with good reason, right? I mean, for the longest time, the system that allows people to make investments, well, it's really been stacked against the everyday people. If you wanted to invest in the stock market, you had to be a part of some brokerage where you'd have to pay high fees. It wasn't unheard of to pay $10 or even $20 every single time you wanted to trade one stock. Think about that. If there was some $100 stock you bought, it doubled in price. Congratulations. But that money you just earned, you can't really do anything with it until you sell that stock for money. And if you did sell it and saw the $100 gains, well, you'd be paying $20 or 20% of the entire amount you just earned. And that's before the taxes you'd pay too. Oh yeah, don't even get us started there, right? There should be the entire new episode or heck, even season. No, but but you're right. I mean, the way that stock trading was designed, well, it prevented those with low balances to be trading one stock at a time here and there. Folks that did have money in the stock market with a broker, well, they'd be encouraged to just sit on it for a very long time, which may be fine advice, right? But for that individual person who wanted to trade in higher volumes, well, they'd be paying lots and lots of fees to do so. Or not at all. These brokerages, they all had minimum balances. If you just had, say, $500 to put into the stock market, well, you may not have a place that would even accept that $500. Until these past few years, where platforms like Robinhood and Public, they were introduced. These platforms were actually pretty revolutionary at the time. Yes, whereas... The traditional brokerages, places like TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, would again have the traditional per-trade fees, higher minimums. These newer platforms had no minimums, and even crazier, they had no trading fees. No trading fees. That alone was huge. Yeah. Now, if you did want to buy one stock here and sell one stock there, you could, and you'd earn your gains, and not have to worry about paying those relatively high commissions. Robinhood was founded by Beiju Bot, and Vladimir Tenev in 2013. Bot had previously built some high-frequency trading platforms for financial institutions in New York City, but with Robinhood, the two wanted to give the power of being able to invest back to the people. Here's Bot in this Wall Street Journal segment from 2015 and how the two formed Robinhood. My co-founder Vlad and I were working, we were building a technology startup in New York and financial services, and a lot of the events actually around the Occupy Wall Street movement really made us uh, 
kind of want to do something that we thought was more positive and, and forward-looking with, uh, with ourselves. And so the objective was always to build a product that allowed consumers that previously didn't have access to a service like the stock market to get access. Their inspiration? The Occupy Wall Street movement, a movement that formed in opposition to the economic inequality that honestly still exists in the fabric of our society. Robinhood was especially attractive to millennials or now Gen Z, groups that may not have had the most money in the bank, but groups that feel like they ought to have the same kind of access when it comes to money than their older peers. Back to the Wall Street Journal segment, here's Bot again with more on Robinhood. If you have less than a few thousand dollars to invest, most of the options out there don't make a lot of sense. Well, first of all, you wouldn't be able to even open an account with a lot of major brokerages out there. But say you found one that had relatively low account minimum as far as brokerages go, which is like $500 or maybe $1,000, and you're paying between $7 and $10 every time you make a trade, you buy some stock for $100 and you sell it, you've, you've already spent like 20% of the value of it on commissions. And so it just like, how are you going to make 20% return to pay for what you paid your broker to do this in the first place? Average customer is about 26 years old, and we know that a lot of these people are using Robinhood for the first time. It's their first investing account. Just 26 years old is the average user. Not exactly that seasoned, slick-back Wall Street banker that you had in your head before, Michael, right? It's very true. Very true. And when Robinhood started offering its no-commission-fee structure, its no-minimum-balance policy, do you know what happened? What's that? Well, all of those other old-school platforms you mentioned, they saw that they were losing clients and fast. So... They followed suit. But wait a minute. If everybody was offering free commissions now, how was Robinhood or any of these other brokerages actually making money? Ah, well, great question. Here's Kate Rooney from a CNBC segment last year and Richard Repetto, an analyst with Piper Sandler, explaining it all. Robinhood doesn't charge customers on the front end. It earns revenue behind the scenes through what's called payment for order flow. The retail broker, like Ameritrade, E-Trade, Schwab, or Robinhood, They'll route the individual's trade to a what we call a wholesale market maker. Two examples of the biggest are Citadel and Virtu. Robinhood makes money because when they route that trade, the payment that goes back, a certain amount of it will go to Robinhood. So it doesn't go to the investor. Robinhood has the highest rate for equities and options. This isn't a new practice though. It's how the other broker terms were also able to eliminate commission fees. Robinhood makes most of its money off of order flow for options trading, a much more complicated and riskier way to invest in stocks. Think of payment for order flow like Facebook and Google. Those are also free because you are the product or your data is. So the money isn't being made from the commissions, but it doesn't have to be. There are all these other ways that they can make money. And same goes for the brokerages. And in 2020, the perfect storm happened. Robinhood had this really well-designed app. They had championed the no minimum balance, the zero commission trades, and all of a sudden, people had a lot of time on their hands. Right, because, well, they couldn't really leave their houses. The COVID-19 pandemic put everybody on lockdown, and so many people turned to platforms like Robinhood and others to do some of their own investing. It helped that the pandemic brought the stock market way down to levels that weren't seen in years. And well, as they say, buy the dip, right? So lots of people started getting on Robinhood to do just that. Here's a segment from Wall Street Journal taking us back. This pandemic uh, and its fallout really represents the biggest shock 
to the U.S. economy in living memory. 2020 has been a turbulent year for the stock market. The biggest drop we've seen since that crash in 1987, fourth quarter in 1999. That's the last time that we saw a quarter this good. But rather than be scared off by the Dow's wild ride, millions of new investors, many of whom are bored, isolated, and out of work because of the pandemic, are buying like never before. 2020 has been a banner year for all brokerage firms, but the broker of the moment is Robin Hood. Named after the fictional character who robbed the rich to feed the poor, Robin Hood's founders say they created the platform to democratize America's financial system by making it cheaper and easier for a new generation of investors to begin building their wealth in the stock market. In fact, we mentioned Wall Street Bets just a couple episodes ago. It was Robinhood that really empowered that community and helped fuel its rise. If Robinhood's goal was to democratize stock market investing, well, it succeeded in a large part. But again, all the power it had and transferred over to the people, well, comes with a lot of responsibility. More on that responsibility and some of the downsides of what happens when you actually do democratize stock market trading after the break. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Before the break, we learned about Robinhood and its rise to popularity serving its mission to democratize investing. Robinhood let everyday people do the same kind of investing that at once was just reserved for those with certain economic privileges. And in 2020, when people were forced to stay home and were just looking for things to do, well, they started opening up Robinhood accounts and became stay-at-home stockbrokers. Some people were doing it just for fun with small amounts. Almost taking the place of things like, I don't know, fantasy football? It's not a bad comparison, right? We'll actually come back to that later on. But others, they were actually taking it more seriously. The stakes were much, much higher for them. And it's one thing if they were playing high stakes trading and they were completely prepared and completely educated on that trading. But those weren't the types of people that made up Robinhood's new user base. Let's go back to the Wall Street Journal segment. I fundamentally believe that decisions belong to their owners so long as those decisions were entered into knowingly and willingly. Tara Falcone is a personal financial advisor whose company Rise Up specializes in working with millennials. And I think that that's where the fine line is really being drawn here, is that these young, inexperienced traders don't know what they're doing. They've never received education around investing. Most of them have no idea what a stock even is or what its price represents. And here's another critic of Robinhood who points out more downsides to this democratization of stock trading This is from a CBS This Morning segment that aired just earlier this year. William Galvin is the chief financial regulator in the state of Massachusetts and one of Robin Hood's chief critics. It was a very deliberate effort on the part of Robin Hood to particularly entice younger, inexperienced investors. Yeah, I bet he's investing right now. He points to the company's marketing, claiming it rewards daily usage of the app and encourages frequent trading. A new kind of investor is changing things up. Even working in virtual confetti in what a recent complaint by Galvin's office described as gamification. 
they call themselves Robin Hood for a reason, right? right? Robin Hood steals from the rich, rich and, and gives, gives to, the, to poor. the poor. Right. Is that what's happening? I, I don't think so. They have not acted in the best interest of their customers. So the idea that they're caring for the poor is simply not true. Remember your comparison to fantasy football, right? Well, William Galvin would actually agree with it because to him, Robin Hood is actually gamifying their app. We just heard from Nurayal earlier this season on how companies build habit-forming products. Some of the user experience you'll find on Robinhood, well, you can make the case that these are habit-building features. And as an app where you're trading stocks, that's not necessarily great product design. It can be problematic, encouraging behavior that can lead to some pretty big consequences, even if they're unintended. Right, because, well, let's just talk about that digital confetti for a minute, right? Seems pretty harmless, a little fun add-on, but psychologically, what is it telling the user? It's telling the user that when you make a trade, congratulations, you've accomplished something. But did you really? If you're making high-volume trades, that may not be necessarily be a good thing. Especially if you're going into this without any or very little training on the process. Tragically, there was another case where somebody who didn't have a lot of experience trading stocks got swept up in all of it. They went too far with things and he really didn't understand what was going on, right? And ultimately, he ended his life. In June, a 20-year-old trader died by suicide after he misinterpreted his Robinhood account statement, which temporarily showed a negative balance of about $730,000. His family said he was trading options, a complicated financial instrument typically used by experienced traders. I likened it like to giving the keys of a sports car to a 12-year-old because, you know, there are certain aspects um, or actions in our society that are gated by age because of where we are as young people in our kind of fundamental uh, psychological development. In a final note left for his family, which was later tweeted by his relative, Kearns wrote that he had no clue what he was doing and that he never intended to take this much risk. Alex Kearns went down a rabbit hole that, well, it was all too easy for him to go down. Options trading can be very complicated, and it takes some skill to really understand what you're getting into. Yeah, let's go back to that CBS This Morning segment and hear from Alex Kern's parents. Here, they talked about more about who Alex is and how it all happened. To be honest, it was really a joyful household. It was. Late last spring, Dan and Dorothy Kearns had a full house after the pandemic brought their 20-year-old son, Alex, home from college. One night, he says to me, he's like, Mom, I don't, know, I don't know what I want to do with my life yet, but I do know I want to help people. But Alex was also interested in investing, and it opened an account with Robinhood, an app that lets anybody buy and sell stocks with no fees and no experience. I didn't see the harm in doing that, and it was limited exposure, so... Um, Where did he get the money that he had from? That was grabbing grandpa money, gifts. I'll told he might have had maybe five grand in his savings. What the Kearns didn't realize was he had also been approved by Robinhood to buy and sell options, a riskier instrument with the potential for huge losses. I don't understand how they allowed that to happen in the first place. They say Alex's inexperience is what got him into trouble one night last June when his Robinhood account showed a negative balance of more than $700,000. At 3.26 a.m., the company then sent an automated email demanding Alex take immediate action requesting a payment of more than $170,000 on his debt. He thought he blew up his life. He thought he screwed up beyond repair. Robinhood has no customer service number, but Alex emailed three times to help understand whether he could still offset the losses with another trade. Could someone please look into this, he wrote, 
receiving back nothing more than an automated message. And their response was a canned reply, basically, we'll get back to you later. What do you do with that thought? It haunts me. It really does. Later that day, the sheriff knocked on the Kern's front door to deliver the news. Alex had killed himself. It's all just so sad. And it really illustrates how when we talk about the democratization of investing, it does sound like such a great thing. Yeah, but there are definitely downsides. Alex Kern's death definitely shouldn't have happened. I mean, there shouldn't be an easy way for a 20-year-old with little stock experience, actually pretty much no stock experience, overnight to rack up what seems like a life-altering amount of debt when he just had $5,000 in his account to begin with. So is this all Robin Hood's fault? Well, that's the question, right? I mean, just as we've talked about so many other times in this season, technology like Robin Hood has brought so many great things to us. It's given us the kind of access that most people have been asking for for years. But that comes with a lot of responsibility. Robinhood has said multiple times that it doesn't take that kind of responsibility for granted. But this is all a pretty sobering example of why words like that aren't as meaningful as action, right? And it will be interesting to see how platforms like Robinhood, Public, Webull, they continue to democratize investing, but in a way, they can prevent tragedies like this one from happening. Let's take another break here, but after the break, I want to talk about another way that investments have been democratized as of late, this time for startups. Before the break, we heard about the democratization of stock investments, what that means for all of us. But also, it's actually caused some damage on its way to putting the power in the people's hands. But it's not the only type of investing that's now open to everyday people. For the longest time, investing in startups, that was only for the ultra-wealthy. You had to be what's called an accredited investor to invest in most startup companies. The very definition of being an accredited investor separates the very wealthy from the rest. You have to have an individual salary of $200,000 or combined household salary of $300,000 or a net worth of $1 million. Don't meet those requirements? Well, you can't trade certain securities, including investing in startups. And let's face it, that's where you can really make the most money. We've heard the stories of $10,000 investments at the seed stage for Uber turning into millions of dollars at IPO. But you can't see that kind of wealth creation getting in on early stage investing like that unless you were an accredited investor. Until recently. Well, sort of. On April 5th, 2012, President Obama signed a landmark piece of legislation called the Jobs Act, and it allowed entrepreneurs to publicly advertise their capital raises. On May 16th, 2016, after four years after the Jobs Act was signed, Title III, aka Regulation CF, or Reg CF, of the Jobs Act went into effect which allowed early-stage private companies to raise money from everybody, not just accredited investors. Title III of the Jobs Act outlined Reg CF, a type of offering allowing private companies to raise up to $5 million from anyone. Similar to, say, a Kickstarter campaign, Reg CF allows companies to raise funds online from their early adopters or anyone else. However, instead of providing investors a reward such as a product or other gift, investors receive securities, typically equity, in the startups they back. And this is a big deal. It basically means that anybody can now invest in an early stage startup so long as that startup is raising capital via Reg CF. And it's not just a big deal here in the U.S., but all over the world. Here's Michael Dowling from Dublin City University in this RTE segment. RTE is Ireland's national public service media. 
in, in Ireland especially, uh, where we've just, we've given up on investment. We've got a very limited range of things that we invest in, uh, like, our, like our pension and our house. And what, what micro-investing allows is it allows us to put a bit of excitement back into the investing process. That can have quite a few benefits to us that if we're, if we're starting to learn about, about Amazon because we've got 20, 20, 20 euro invested in them, we, we might start to start to see, well, actually this, this is interesting because we, we can start to see what's gonna to happen to our high streets. Uh, are, they, are they going to start shutting down as we learn more about the efficiency with which Amazon can move goods from China to Dublin? Um, it might also give us further investment ideas or even further career ideas. Uh, the job we do is the biggest investment. It's the investment of our time. By making a, a small investment, uh, we're starting to bring some excitement back. We're starting to think more about the importance of investment and we're starting to learn other things that are, that are beneficial as well. And, and I, I think it has a lot of benefits when we start thinking like that. And, it's, it, it's and certain entrepreneurs are getting on board. We've had Arlen Hamilton from Backstage Capital on the show before. She raised via Reg CF earlier this year for her fund and ended up raising several million dollars in just a matter of a couple days. Here she is on This Week in Startups with Jason Calacanis. March 15th, you know, the, the amount went up from $1.07 million to $5 million. That was the cap that can be raised there. And we took advantage of that. And so we did, we, we did do the fastest on Republic first million. Uh, ironically mm. enough, because that's the name of my podcast. So the first million was the fastest that had been on the on Republic, which was eight hours. And then um, there was a waiting list that had about a million on it. And then March 15th, uh, in about seven days, we raised three million. Wow. To, to be a total of five. It's really incredible. You hear her mention Republic, like Robinhood helped democratize stock investments. Republic is doing the same for companies raising Reg CF and for people who want to invest in those very companies. Kendrick Nguyen is the founder and CEO of Republic. And in this Talks at Google segment from 2019, he explains where he sees Republic and micro-investing in companies through platforms like Republic fit into a person's life. I think generally from what I observe of how people spend fall into three categories. One is the basic necessity, you know, putting food on the table, buying toothpaste, feeding your kids, you have kids. The second one is for enjoyment, for value. You know, you go out and buy a nicer jacket and you necessarily need, you take a kite surfing lesson. And the third one is for growing that capital that will, able, that will enable you to do number one and two. So... Obviously, don't spend any money that you absolutely need to feed yourself and your family in the casino or in investing, for that matter. When it comes to micro-investing, $100, $500, investing, not buying a product, I think it's a blend between two and three. It is quite satisfying if I really believe in that food truck founder and her food and her resilience day in, day out. And she decides to fundraise to build a Mexican restaurant. And I invest $200 into it. You know, if she doesn't make it, I'm, st I'm still rooting for her. Now, if I'm investing $200,000 into it, I probably would want to know that I can get, you know, the money back or that she would do so well that I could make, you know, two or three times as much. But when it comes to micro-investing, you're going to be... You, sh you will be able to let 
people gamble or make informed decision and have fun between two and three. So you'll notice he's talking about micro-investing in part as something that's fun. And it can be, right? Maybe there's a local business that's raising money. You can own a piece of that local business and feel good when it succeeds because you can help it get there. It's sort of mixing business with pleasure, so to speak, right? <laughs> and you're doing something that's good, but hey, you could financially benefit from it too. So what's the downside here? Is is there one? Well, I'm not sure if there's a hard downside, so to speak, but there's definitely things that you have to keep in mind. Well, Again, when you open it up to anybody, not just accredited investors, it means that people who may not have very much experience with investing are now going to be investing. And gosh, I mean, I remember raising money from accredited investors and not all of those people were necessarily sophisticated. But now, I mean, it's possible to have people investing who might have unrealistic expectations as an investor. Right, like I invested my $100 in your campaign last month when am I going to see my returns? Exactly. And as you and I know, it doesn't work like that, especially when you're investing at that very early stage. I mean, you may never see returns. And if you do, you're not going to get that check because of some exit that happened for, what, six, seven, eight years down the road? Right. Early exits can happen. But in reality, the most successful companies, it's a very long slog. These are the successful ones, too. So, OK, you may have people with unrealistic expectations. Yes expectations about returns, but also for information. Right, information? Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. Let's just say you raised $5 million through Reg CF and the average investor invested, I don't know, $500. I mean, to a mega millionaire, that's a trivial amount. They may not care about it. They may even write that check and forget they even had that investment. But to the average everyday person, $500 is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, they might expect to get investor updates they want to know what's happening with that five hundred dollars that they contributed and let's do the math five million an average investment size of five hundred dollars that's ten thousand investors writing ten thousand five hundred dollar checks and it could be ten thousand emails i mean if mm -hmm. each investor sent just one innocent hey how are things going email in the course <laughs> of a year and it took the ceo about two minutes to respond to each one it would take that CEO eight full work weeks just to simply respond to those emails. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Now, I'm not saying it actually plays out that way. And and hey, look, there are positives to exposing an entirely new class of startup investors to all this. But when you're not necessarily trained on investing, these are the types of things that can happen. These are some of the potential downsides. All in all, what do you think? Would you raise money via RegCF? I'm definitely intrigued by it. And I think everybody listening should weigh it all. I mean, whether you're raising money by it or investing in companies that are raising money by it, but give it some thought. I mean, you got to really think through your decisions before you do decide to invest or, or raise money. Same goes for using platforms like Robinhood. I think those platforms are, are great, actually, or at least they can be, but only if we're using those platforms after probably having thought things through. Fair enough. I, I think I'm in the same boat. Yeah. So I hope everybody has had a chance to, to let this episode just kind of simmer in your mind, and, and hopefully it does from here on out. Uh, but that is going to wrap things up for this week. Uh, so for Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Rocketship.fm, and we'll see you back next week. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to the Podglomerate 
rocketship.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.